Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today, we have with us pastor, author, and my good friend, Adam Phillips. Adam is the founding pastor of Christ Church Portland. He's long been an advocate on global poverty, economic justice, and previously led faith mobilization for the One Campaign, which is actually how he and I met. He worked with World Vision on Community Transformation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. His first book, Love, Light, Joy, and Justice, released a couple of months back. Adam and his wife, Sarah, live in Portland along with their son, Desmond. Adam, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Good to be here. Now, you're the second person to have been on the podcast twice. Yeah. So I don't know whether I should start by apologizing yeah. or saying congratulations, but welcome right, again. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Last time I had my, uh, uh, my friend El- uh, Elsa on as well. So it was kind of, yes, that was, was it kind of, kind of it was nice. like two years ago? Yeah. So first, yeah. as we begin, uh, what should our listeners know about you, your story, your background? Yeah, I'm a pastor. Um, I'm, I'm I've been married 17 years. Known my spouse, my wife, for uh, over 20. I'm um, a new dad as of two years. Um, planted a church six years ago. Uh, wrote a book. Live in Portland. Um, probably have some stereotypes starting to bubble up, and that's fine. Um, <laughs> What but does I didn't that grow mean? Up, uh, well, like I, you know, Portland stereotypes? Port, well, all, I mean, I just named a bunch of things. I, what I'm trying to get at is uh, my name's Adam, and I'm really happy to talk about faith and culture right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I should say this. I, um, what was the profound thing I was about to say? Um, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in the church at all. And so I'm kind of accidentally here. Uh, and I'm happy about that. How did you come around to getting getting into the church or start going to church, however you want to say it? Uh, I wanted to find out what <clears throat> I wanted to find out what Bono was talking about on Bull with the Blue Sky when he said that Jacob <laughs> wrestled the angel. <laughs> so are you serious? I'm, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. Uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, so a little young boy, grown up in, born in Ohio, grew up in San Diego. Um, dad was Southern Baptist. Um, clearly, at this point now, we realize the trauma he experienced through a lot of that. Um, my mom and dad wisely did not raise us in that culture, um, and uh, but I was still very curious and wanting to be um, dialed into God, um, and so would go to church with whoever would take me. So in San Diego, I saw everything from like really boring, 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 boring church to um, really vivid mass, like this Catholic mass that I'd go to with a family friend. Um, And also like charismatic Pentecostalism, Vineyard, Calvary Chapel, all that. And it all kind of made sense to me in some way, even though it barely makes sense to me now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the, the subtitle of your book is how to be a Christian now. Yep. So let's let's jump into the conversation. What does it mean to follow Jesus today in this very moment, in this very context? That's an easy question, and then we'll get on to the next one. Yeah, I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I think we have to talk about whether or not we are following in the, in the footsteps of Jesus as a model, as a guide, as a mentor, as a teacher, as a healer, as a... Uh, 
you know, they, they would talk about uh, Jesus as Lord, right? And I know that that language is tricky. And I get why that's tricky language. There's patriarchy, there's power dynamics there. It's been uh, totally abused. But are we following, which which king, which Caesar are we following? Jesus didn't even want to be called king. So what are we following here? And I think to follow Jesus is uh, to pursue a life of love, light, joy, and justice, quite simply. And so one of the differences that you're tapping into, even right from the start, is for so many people, Christianity has long been about a certain set of beliefs. And so there's anywhere between eight to, depending on what denomination you come from, up to 15 propositional statements, bullet points. There's confessions that we have to um, rise up to meet mentally. There's the catechisms that are like the question and answer um, so you have that whole side, what you're talking about, I mean, you use words like model, guide, mentor, teacher, this sounds a lot different than that. Can you unpack some of that for us? Yeah. I, you know, I think doctrines are important. I think theology or how we talk about God is, is really important. Um, but I think that we've put the cart before the horse. I think theological reflection, literally just reflecting on how we think and experience and talk about God is always in a circle. And so it's, it's always uh, in real relation to our action in the world and our, um, and our belonging in the world. And so, I, I, gosh, I mean, I, I've done the whole doctrinal dogmatic thing and it's, it's, uh, it's punishing. It's cruel. Um, it, it sets up false boundaries, demarcations. It sends people to, um, shitty, sorry, uh, reparative therapy. Um, don't mean to, uh, on your podcast. Um, it, I think that doctrines are dangerous when they are about, um, policing the boundaries. But when we're talking about theological reflection, we're think, talking about, you know, what, what does it mean to think about God or think about the earth or think about prayer, whatever we fill in the blank. Um, it, 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 is this a, is this a conversation? Is this a, a mental exercise that is about bearing fruit in the world, about living better in the world uh, and for future generations? Or is this just about some sort of like Lord of the Rings fan fiction that I think so much of our uh, uh, theological debates are kind of about? It's like this esoteric something that happened off screen and we don't have any sense of the purpose of it. Hmm. So it is this it's this movement toward practice and maybe I should say it's an, it's an inclusion of practice alongside belief and and always being in a place where we're reflecting on do these beliefs and do these practices, um, yield a life that when observed looks like Jesus. Would that be a fair way to say it? Yeah. 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 When you look at the gospels, you, you, you see, um, you see Jesus, you, you don't see Jesus teaching a didactic kind of three point sermon on, what happens when the blood hits the ground? You, you know, you don't see Jesus teaching a thought idea. You, you see Jesus opening up a window of maybe changing your mind around something, metanoia. That's what repentance is about, um, changing your direction, changing your mind. But you don't see Jesus teaching like life lessons for a doctrinally sound, uh, safe for the whole family Christian experience. No, you see Jesus modeling. You see Jesus saying, imitate me. 
you see Jesus doing things, sitting with uh, the woman at the well in the high noon sun. Uh, you see Jesus uh, healing um, lepers on the Sabbath day. You see Jesus um, washing his disciples' feet. You see this like, really radical stuff. Uh, you don't see um, a systematic theology. Right. Yeah. And if Jesus's intention was to be clear, he did a horrible job. Correct. <laughs> well, they, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So walk, let, let's start walking through the book. So you divided the book up into four parts, as the title suggests, love, light, joy, and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so first you talk about this idea of love, love being greater than fear. Um, help us understand a bit more about that, w- w- what you're saying, uh, what you're introducing us to. Yeah, I think that Jesus comes not to start a new religion, not to placate the wrath of an angry Father God in the sky. Um, I think that Jesus shows us the way of love, which is a way of returning to our true self. You know, um, um, you know, C.S. Lewis has that book Till We Have Faces. You, you have the 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 Zen kind of Buddhist mentality of uh, looking for the face we had before the world was made. Like we are originally love. Um, and we find ourselves in empires of division of empires of hate, uh, empires of, of forces that are not love. And so what is love? Uh, and, and that word love has certainly been co-opted by a number of Christians. Uh, we think about ideas of tough love, right? But, uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a, a love that's, uh, that's quite profound, quite, um, pursuant of our ultimate good. You know, we think about um, Psalm 139 and this idea that the psalmist talks about you can't get away from God's uh, gaze wherever you go. You could go the farthest corner of the earth and get on a boat and go across the sea. You can go into the depths of hell and God's there. And I think so many um, Christians may have grown up with this idea of like the all-seeing big brother eye, that God is in judgment. But no, I think that God is a God of solidarity deeply with us, deeply with a, a, a contemplative gaze of love for us. And so how do we live out that love for others? That's the, that's the question right now, especially when we've got kids separated from the parents on the Southern border of this country. Right. So if we're going to talk about, we already talked a little bit about practice. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to talk about what does a practice of love look like, what's something you've experienced when you talk about being in the the gaze of God's love? What would be a way for our listeners to yeah. um, begin seeing that maybe in their own lives, maybe something they could witness in the world in which we're living? Yeah. One thing I've learned in the last couple of years um, that's quite profound for me, um, I'm, I'm a student of the Living School um, with Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau. Um, and Jim Finley and others, uh, Barbara Holmes. Um, and when you think about uh, a life of contemplation and action, and when you think about um, Richard Rohr and meditation, you might think, oh, this is a, like learning how to pray in silence. And, and that's certainly a, a part of the spiritual practice, right? Like having a, a life of contemplation, and you might do that, you know, 20 minutes in the morning or 20 minutes in the evening. That's important. Uh, it's It's foundational for me. Um, but what I've come to realize is that it's uh, a contemplative gaze is, is actually the, is the key that unlocks so much of this. It's not about learning how to pray. It's about uh, that rhythm and practice that spiritual practice that will help me then have a contemplative gaze on everything. So, which is nearly impossible, right? But 
when I'm walking through the just a normal day, right? And I get that text from somebody and it triggers up something in me or it makes me feel angry or it makes me feel sad. I could just as easily, and this is, I think, what we see happening all around us, um, lash out at that person or blame somebody else. But the invitation for me is to then perhaps say, have an invitation to love and ask myself, what is it about this moment, this occasion, this person, this experience that is making me feel these feelings? And when you begin to take a contemplative gaze, you begin to, I feel like, um, decouple these these patterns that we all have fallen prey to, which are about scapegoating, about division, about right and wrong, uh, demarcated lines. Uh, this gets to cancel culture. This gets to so much. And so the invitation is continually another invitation to love, whether it's being woken up at three in the morning with a child who... Um, needs a diaper change, which we have in our house right now. Um, uh, or whether it's the email that comes across your screen or whether it's the tweet you see or whether it's the experience in traffic uh, or go, so on and so forth. So, Yeah, it's to return. What, what does Paul say? Like, don't overcome evil with evil, overcome evil with good. Right. Is what I hear and, you saying. Yeah. Yeah. And good's not necessarily like nice and easy, right? Like. <laughs> It's, it's not necessarily nice and easy. That's why Jesus, I think, also call, commands us literally to love our enemies. So how, do we, how do we do that well? And, and you, you made a quick comment, passing comment, about the idea of we cancel them. And mm -hmm. th this is something we see in our current context all the time is one of the reasons your book is so important is because we are, we are experiencing and witnessing the opposite of love in so many ways, which is outrage, which mm -hmm. is fear which is anger. Right. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about that idea of canceling and the call out culture? You and I have had a lot of conversations about this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think there's a difference between calling out and canceling. I think calling out is, is trying to use your voice to illumine something, an injustice in the world. Um, canceling is about, um, something completely different. I, I think we throw it around. So, um, flippantly, but I, I find cancel culture to be perhaps one of the most degrading things we could do to somebody else. I, 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 and can I you explain cancel, cancel culture? What, what is it? Yeah. Cancel culture. I think, I think comes out of, a. um, I think cancel culture comes out of a, a, a desire to say, you know what, we're not going to support that anymore. We think about the me too movement, Harvey Weinstein. We think about, um, these these horrific stories that have been buried, uh, this horrific reality that's been buried and has needed to come up to the surface. We've needed a reckoning. We need to change our ways we, as a society, as a culture, et cetera. Um, and then you cancel that person. Now, as a Christian, I don't think I'm ever allowed to cancel somebody. I think that's, that's akin to what Jesus would talk about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, thou shalt not murder, right? Like you've heard it said this, but I tell you, you shall not cancel as well. Um, cause I think canceling does something that is very inhumane. Like we don't, we, we just push them through the moon door. If you, if you know game of Thrones or they just disappear. It's like, it's like, uh, you unsubscribe from that email. I'll never be bothered by it again. Well, in reality, what does that do to us when we start to, 
unsubscribe or cancel human beings, even if they are our neighbors, even if they are, might be an enemy. Like, I, I think we have to figure out a way to reconcile our 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 need for um, justice, our need for uh, restitution, our need for healing, but in a way that doesn't just nothing vaporize folks. And I, and I think on the left, it's it's some of the most toxic stuff. We're we're just imitating what was the, done to us, you know. Right, and, and yeah, and in in with that is often the public shaming. Yeah, and, yeah, and it's not even shaming based on what you've done anymore. It's now who you're with. If you're seen with the wrong person, all of a sudden you'll get roasted. And it's right. Uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about this that yeah. what we're measuring is no longer intent. We're measuring impact. And the impact is subjective because it's the one who's been impacted. And so if right. somebody says something mistakenly that has right. any sort of impact or perceived impact on a particular person or a particular group, that person gets crucified regardless of what whether they meant it. And so right. we assign evil intent. We, design, uh, right. we assign um, you know, evil motive to people all of the time. And so I think this idea of what you're getting at of how do we love is so important because we are an angry culture and beneath that is often so much fear. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. I want, I want to keep working through the book because part two is um, about light. So you talk about being light amidst the darkness. Um, and so talk a little bit about that, about practical ways we can be light in our world today and what that looks like uh, as you talk about it. Yeah. So when I wrote this book, Love, Light, Joy, and Justice, I was trying to reach into my own experience of, in effect, kind of being canceled. I was uh, part of this denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church. Started going uh, late in high school. So yeah, I didn't grow up in church, but I started going with some friends eventually and ended up being in this denominational setting for almost 20 years. Um, and uh, started this church in Portland six years ago. Uh, and literally had a flyer that said, all people are welcome. And um, within like six months, we were thrown out, lost our funding, sh publicly shamed. Um, it was really one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. And yet um, in the suffering, uh, I don't think God, you know, caused that suffering. Again, I think God is in solidarity with the suffering. But in the suffering, I began to pick up some themes that were happening in our larger culture. So love, light, and justice were really foundational to me. Uh, joy came later. But for me, light is about telling, uh, illuminating truth. So like that impulse to call out something, right? That impulse to, and you know, I think um, there's some really great models uh, uh, that are doing this so well these days um, that are, um, you know, calling out well. Uh, I think of um, uh, Jamila Jamil. I don't know if you know this actor. She's um, She's quite profound. Um, she's an activist as well. Um, so we we, we want to illumine light in the midst of darkness. And this theme of light is so profound in the Jesus tradition that there is uh, there is a light that never goes out. Right? There is darkness, but the, the darkness never overcomes the light. So at, at the darkest moment in, in in our Christian tradition, we we might think about uh, Good Friday or Holy Saturday around Easter when. It seems like death has death has the final word. Empire has won. Uh, our friend, our, our our teacher, our guide, Jesus is dead. 
Um, and yet light comes uh, in the dawn. And so for me, what does it look like to practically talk about uh, light in a world of alternative facts, right? Uh, so much of what's going on in our culture is an unveiling of powers and principalities and realities that have been here long before anybody named Donald Trump showed up in the White House, right? But we have this reality that people now believe in two different sets of facts. Um, Ken Wilber says that we live in an age of aperspectival madness, that we don't know, we don't have a true perspective anymore. And, and that's the breakdown, the culmination of years and years of uh, postmodernity when we, 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 we want to honor other versions of insight and wisdom. But then at some point, this meta narrative devolves, breaks down, and we, we don't know what truth is anymore because it has been so propositionally minded. Um, so what I'm talk, trying to talk about in terms of light is like, what is truly true in a world where so many people say that's not my truth or those aren't my facts. Um, and I think Jesus helps us get to what's truly true because it's pretty essential. Like for Jesus, like it's about, it's about the common good. It's about loving God, loving neighbor, loving ourselves. It's about, um, this balance of being kind of part of the whole, um, in an integral way, um, not it's a it's 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 a life of uh, abundance, and so uh, not scarcity, not power, not protection. So, quite practically, you know, I'm trying to read um, uh, Drudge Report uh, a little bit more these days and tune into uh, conservative radio just to hear what they're saying about the impeachment uh, inquiry because um, I can just as easily fall down my own rabbit hole of. Um, curated facts. And um, I'm still on the side of, yeah, we've got some real problems in this world. <laughs> um, but that, that's what I'm trying to talk about. What, what does it look like to shed light uh, in, a, in, a, in a life-giving way, not in a tear-down way? And, and often when I've heard people talk about light and darkness, it's that light is all good, positive, right. darkness, stay away from it. And there's this fear Right. Both in, in some ways that we're born with of the darkness. And then there's a the fear of like the uh, metaphor of darkness. But how how mm. can darkness be its own teacher? Have you experienced that? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think our friends in the in the Taoist tradition, you know, you, you see the yin yang symbol. There's, darkness has its work to do. And darkness isn't about um, bad or evil. I, no, I, I do think there's evil in the world. And I do think there are, quote, dark forces at play. And yet, I do know that in the muck, in the mire of my own human experience as a dad, as a husband, as a son, as a person, as a friend, I've got stuff I got to work through, right? That's what I was trying to talk about earlier with the contemplative gaze stuff. So for me, um, going into the shadow, going into the an inner journey, you know, therapy helps with this, um, other forms of, um, therapeutic, uh, work help with this. Um, you learn darkness can be your teacher. Darkness can your anxiety or your depression can help illumine something about your life that might need to change or, or a setting or a circumstance that might need to change. And that's actually how I got to the, the, the joy section, because in my grief, I was so angry losing mentors, losing friends, um, losing community. I was so angry and I, 
and and I was easily rewarded, um, especially on social media for calling out things. And so many people want justice and I am one of them. We want things to be righted. We want wrongs to be righted. And yet I, 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 in the middle of all that, I tapped into this reality that I had so much grief work to do. Hmm. And I began to see that if I, if I don't do my grief work, my grief will work me and work anybody around me. I'll just become bitter, angry. Um, I, I won't, I won't be the person I know I'm supposed to be. And so that's, and, the, and that's, that's, that's a dark passage. That's the dark night of the soul. That's the, that's so, that, that work is so hard, but when you do it and I find you have to do it with community or with professional help, um, you can excavate real joy. And that's, and that's how the joy piece in the book came. So, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the third part, joy. What does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what happened to me in my evangelical denomination, getting kicked out for welcoming LGBT sisters and brothers, LGBTQ siblings, friends, neighbors, um, is that I uh, only experienced in a, in a very small way the trauma that's been unfolding in our country and in our world for decades. And we see on full display, I believe, in the administration of of the 45th president of the United States. Now, now that's a, that could be seen as like, Oh, that's just happening in DC. What does that mean for me in my own life? Well, we now have a huge debate about what is true. We now have a huge debate about what, um, is right in the world. Um, and it's manifested itself on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, we have a, we have, uh, we have a daily airing of grievances and resentments on social media. And not even it's like daily. every day is Festivus. <laughs> right, right. I was thinking about Festivus. Every day is Festivus. Um, and it's just toxic and corrosive and gross. Um, and I think it's because we haven't figured out how to do our grief work. I don't think everything can be solved by saying, you know, that happened to this person when they were three or four years old. And But there's something about that work that needs to, that needs to happen for us. And we need to have courage and safety and, and places to do that work well, um, while we also hold people accountable to the mess they're doing in the world. Um, I would love to just wholesale cancel everybody associated with Donald Trump. I'm just going to put that out there straight up. <laughs> but Adam, one of the things that we do I ask can't. from our guests is for, to be honest, just to be, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I find it absolutely repulsive at every level. And yet, where does it end? Where does the canceling end? Where where does the where does that violence end? And uh, and that for me is that work of like, what about me inside is so angry and mad and resentful? And what about this moment is triggering some of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and how do I uh, in the in the Christian tradition in the Jesus way die to to myself? You know, I I think I, I think there's a healthy conversation at some level about reimagining what these ideas and concepts look like biblically, theologically, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a good conversation happening uh, in post evangelical, ex evangelical circles around what some of these, these verses mean, what some of this theology means, but I keep coming back to what I think are some 
tremendous clarion nuggets of wisdom. And that is like, what does it look like for me to die to myself? What does it look like for me to die to the grief that I think has been propping me up and giving me this sort of like superpower that's actually like not for the common good, right? Like I, if I, if I, uh, if I just rant and rave on Facebook, I get rewarded for it. I, and, and then you get these hits and these likes and these shares and you can build a whole platform around that. And that's what we're seeing happening in our world today. And, uh, I, I think we need more people to go deep and ask why, why am I so angry? What, what is unsatisfied about my own life? What's unsatisfactory about my own life experience? What's, what happened to me in that trauma, which was so real, the trauma is so real, but what is hap- What is, what's blocking me from the healing that I deserve or that any of us deserve. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not erasing trauma. I'm not erasing uh, injustice and violence in the world. But for me, it was truly about tapping into my grief work in order to get to the other side, which was this, this land of joy. Now I don't mean this in some sort of like, uh, like, uh, like airy fairy state of mind. I, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Um, honestly, other than we need to do our grief work. Yeah. There's, there's the, um, the idea you use the term dying to ourselves and right. there's that idea of all the attachments, how attached we are to so many things, be, yeah. not just grief, but things that give us our identity. And we right. look to those things for, as father Richard Rohr says, as our program of happiness. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to write a book and that's going to give me certain clout with certain people and right. When they applaud for me, that's going to give me all the joy I need. I have these possessions. I'm this kind of person in the world. Mm. Um, And there's there's no limit to it. And I do think um, I I wholeheartedly agree with you about grief. I I really, for the first time at the beginning of 2019, took a deep dive into Mm. my grief and realizing it's just an ongoing process. I'm now learning what does it look like to move forward with with grief, um, that grief is not something that should debilitate us, but something that should actually give us new life when we go into it. Right, right. But w- w- you mentioned how angry so many people are. And I think some of the anger comes from the place that when we're living um, in a consumeristic culture, we're living in a world where we have so many attachments and are so dependent on all these external things to feed us, at some point, we're going to be disappointed. Um, and, and so when, when you talk about this anger that you were experiencing, mm. um, what are some of the real practical ways? What are some of, let me ask you this. Um, what are some of the things you confronted that led you beyond the anger into greater and greater joy? Mm. I think I had a false sense of what I was supposed to be when I, um, got to this place in my life or where I was supposed to be when I got to 50, I'm turning 40 in December, you know, like all of these promises that if you're just a good boy and you do the right thing and you, you're impressive enough and you're dynamic enough, you'll be rewarded for those systems and the, and those ways of being. And, and again, like this is, you know, this is the great unmasking, the great unveiling that those are just false systems. They're, they're based on patriarchy. They're based on empire and they're, it's garbage. And yet, uh, it was a real promise to me growing up in America 
that if I just behaved well and told the truth, which I was telling the truth, like I, I actually didn't do anything wrong according to the book, right. In our, in our tradition and in our denomination, I didn't do any weddings. I didn't do anything, but just say like, yeah, people can come and be part of this church. Um, that experience when that was all the rug was taken completely out from under me and then, uh, obfuscation and lies and people you love and trusted and who were mentored by ghost you and disappear. Like the grief sets in hard and the anger was my way of dealing with the grief. Um, and it took probably three years for me to like begin to walk out of that. Um, and you know, Phyllis Tickle talks about the great rummage sale that we need to put on uh, her, her book, The Great Emergence, is just so profound. And uh, I miss her wisdom today. But she talks about this idea of the rummage sale and we need to just like make room. And I've learned that like in the experience of getting kicked out of our denomination as we were starting this church, we were able to make so much room for so many different, not just ideas, but just people and life and belonging that it, um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, even though it was one of the most traumatic, terrible things that happened to me. That's not always Mm. the story with trauma. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize profound injustice and profound trauma. But for me, uh, going to the heart of the, the, the betrayal and the pain in my own life helped me find true belonging and joy. Yeah. And I think I've, I've, I've often quoted my uh, therapist who says that anger is fear and pain coming out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what you're talking about is exactly that you had a wound right. and it was obviously deep. And I mean, I remember right. walking through that with you. Yeah. Um, and when those things are left untended, Mm. those, those can manifest themselves into anger. And so for those of you who are listening, we often talk about what is our next step in our Mm -hmm. process. You might be listening and you might be dealing with some sort of, or experiencing, let me say it that way, some sort of anger. And let me encourage you, anger, like any emotion is neither good or bad, but it does have the power to illuminate things within us. Yeah. So maybe as you're listening, you're super angry yeah. Um, and my encouragement would be this good, listen to that. And as my friend Dave says, interrogate your emotion mm-hmm. to figure out what's beneath it, because mm-hmm. it's at that point that the, we can deal with anger all day. It'll never go away. What's causing the anger, um, as we get deeper and deeper and deeper is our longing to be loved in a feeling that we either will not be or a feeling that uh, someone's wounded us in a way that's told us we are not loved. Um, So, yeah, I think that what you're talking about, I resonate with that so, so deeply. Uh, And it does, it creates greater joy. Um, Oh, go ahead. And what I worry about right now, uh, honestly, uh, because there are some things we should be absolutely angry about. We should be angry about uh, the division in our families right now. We should be angry about kids being separated from their parents because they don't have the quote legal papers uh, on the Southern border right now. We should be angry about the coming uh, e- ecological crisis that we are facing. We should be angry about these things. So I, I love that idea that anger is uh, kind of a, it's a neut- it's a neutral currency, kind of like money, right? Uh, it can be used for good and it can be used for evil. My, 
I think we have every right to be angry about these things, but how are yes. we going to um, metabolize that anger into a force for good? Um, and I worry that we're just imitating what was given to us by by um, empire, by oppressive patriarchal culture, right? And so that's what I'm trying to get out of uh, uh, the canceling stuff. But I, I think it, we can we can laugh about, oh yeah, they're canceled is a joke here and there. Uh, we can even talk about the need to have strict boundaries where we don't support certain people or institutions or corporations anymore. I think that those are important conversations, but to just kind of dehumanize, if we dehumanize, if we call out to a, a point of destruction and degradation and canceling, we, we are dehumanizing ourselves and we're just, we're just marinating in our own anger rather than having it transmuted into something, um, profound and healing. I, I really think there's an energy to anger that is, um, that can be turned into gold. Um, if we can figure out the alchemy of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. And, and beyond this, then, uh, mm. part four of the book, you talk about, uh, justice. Yeah. And, yeah. and one of the things I've learned, I can't believe that it's almost been 20 years that I've been preaching. Um, yeah. and, one of the things that surprised me the first time I preached about justice was I found it to be a very controversial, explosive um, right. thing to talk about. And beyond that, what I've seen is the explosive nature of it continues to ratchet up. So I actually just right. preached a few weeks back about justice and found that the complexity of it, how to talk about it, how to even engage this... Um, is is more and more complicated all the time because of the current world we're living in, our current context. So I think it's incredibly important you're addressing it. So let me right. just just ask you, Adam, what is true justice? What does justice look like? Uh, what is it that you share in the book? Yeah, I mean, I take my um, guiding lights from the civil rights movement. Um, I, I had the honor to go on a pilgrimage with John Lewis, Congressman Lewis, who was a young man during... Uh, the civil rights movement, a young, you know, kind of a young, uh, member of the Reverend Martin Luther King, uh, army of love, right. Um, suffered immensely on the bridge at Selma. And I got to go to that spot with him. Hmm. And, uh, this is a man that is so profoundly wise and kind and very, uh, much about calling out injustice in the world. And he sees as, uh, and for me, I see a, a thread line of, of uh, not identity politics, but a thread line of an, an integrity to this perspective, right? Of of seeking out justice. And for, and for for me, the the lesson in uh, listening to those leaders is that yes, we want justice, we want the wrongs to be made right. But we truly, if we are trying to follow in the footsteps of love, uh, trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, um, we want to pursue a, a, a justice that restores or repairs, you know, um, uh, restorative justice is different than what we see in our justice system, right? Where um, arbitrarily people are put away for 10 years or life. And it's sort of like that's their debt they'll pay to society. It's an atonement. Well, if we start to, interrogate what debt and atonement actually might mean for us in our commonwealth and our common good, we'll, we'll begin to see that, man, it's not just about, it's not just about righting wrongs. It's about shalom. It's about this peace that surpasses all understanding. And that includes, 
people that we don't necessarily want around the Thanksgiving table, right? Uh, that includes <laughs> people we don't want to sit next to on an airplane. Um, and that's going to take grief work too. So injustice, like, look, I think that there's a lot of injustice. I've, I've talked a little bit about it. I think our immigration uh, policies are horrifically unjust. I think uh, the ecological crisis we face is is about injustice um, uh, around economics, around consumption, around a lot of things, racism, homophobia, misogyny. It was so, the, the, the laundry list of injustices are wrong. And so for us, how do we stay resolute and focused and do what we can, uh, where we can, but also how do we stay true to that heartbeat of love that I think is actually the animating force in the universe if we can open our eyes and that's what jesus came to be about um that's what jesus was helping us return to um and so that's what justice means for me i i'm you know i guess i'm a social justice warrior i'd glenn beck put me up on the big board one day uh which was a weird <laughs> a weird day um, oh man yeah social justice warrior and i and i you know i have the t-shirts and I have the wristbands i've seen but i've seen you know, I've seen that work work. Um, and yet it's just a, it's just the tip of the tip of the, the iceberg when it comes to the great need that we have for what justice truly entails. And one of the questions that was recently, um, I heard recently posed was who gets to say what's right. So, mm. um, justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. It says in Psalm 89, and those two things go hand in hand and righteousness right. We're right. so often thought of as people who keep the rules, but it's really just what's right, what is right. supposed to happen. And now there is, you, you talked a little bit about truth, but this argument against, or um, for who gets to decide what's right. And for so long, there was a very small group of people in places of power who mm. decided what was right. And we all know that's not working. So what, what would you say to somebody who says, who gets to decide what's right? I would say, amen. Um, and then I would say, <laughs> but I would, I would say, oh, well, let's, let's take that question all, all, as far as we can go. And I think, you know, here, you know, a couple of privileged cishet guys here, straight guys, uh, talking on a podcast. And, um, I think that question of who decides what's right often comes with, conversation around who's taking up space, which is usually taking up too much space. And it's very clear. We need to not just make room, but find new ways to gather folks for collective wisdom. Um, we do the, we do communion every week at our church. And I talk about it as practicing table manners. Like what does it look like to practice the table manners of Jesus? And the table that he gathered was always profoundly not the normal table of the day. Uh, people from all walks of life, um, people that even disagreed with him were part of that table. Um, so we, we clearly need to figure out how to create tables of decision-making, I guess, or wisdom today and new. I don't think it's just about guys like me making room or taking up less space. And yet I want to be part of the table too, because I think I will have I will learn. Um, and I think I have something to say, like, I, I, so we have to figure out how to answer that question. And I, you know, I can feel the canceling coming in right now as I say that. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the reality is, is that I, I, I have just one little small piece of 
the puzzle figured out. And, um, and it's a very, very small piece. It might be that, that nicked corner that's got the like picture that turns out to be this grand, grand, you know, 1000 piece puzzle. And so I want to be at paid tables that are making collaborative decisions that are making decisions that are interrogating what we thought was truly true. Um, but that we're resolute in trying to, to make good, healthy, sound decisions. Cause we all, we all need it. We all need it in practical ways. You know, we all need it from how we parent to how we, shop to how we consume to how we do all the things but i I, I probably didn't even answer that question did i (laughs) Uh, no you did i think you you talked about getting a a collective group together and and listening to all voices and and you you use an example of you know you and i are sitting here as as two white men having this conversation and i was recently in a conversation where somebody talked about how they objected to the idea that um, women, people of color, and uh, need right. more airtime than mm. us, which which was surprising to hear. Mm. And the way I described it was, if you have two buckets and you're filling them with water, mm. the the bucket that I'm in, we've just had water poured over yeah. us for centuries. And so I said, it's not a because he was talking about it being a dangerous pendulum swing. I said, it's not a dangerous pendulum swing. I think what we need is water poured in the buckets of others um, to the extent that it it is the same amount of water that we've had. And until we can really begin to even get close to balancing that out, I think there's some real significant questions to ask around who gets to decide what's right? And and I do think you know there's a multitude and a wisdom uh, or wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Mm. And so I yeah I fully agree that having more people and being in a place at least for me of listening more than I've ever listened, right? So that I can continue to learn, so that I can continue to discover my my blind spots, the the places that I've long been unaware of. Um, those things have been incredibly helpful. And, and for me, it's meant showing up at a table uh, right. of interfaith leaders and, right, right. and being in, waiting to be invited to, to contribute, waiting to be invited to talk and um, yeah. sitting with people, by the way, on both sides of the aisle, conservative yeah. people, liberal people yeah. in listening, uh, being curious, asking questions that I, I think those are at least steps toward beginning to agree on what's, what's right. Let me, um, let's conclude with this. You've, you've mentioned our current sitting president two times, and I know in the book you talk a little bit about, um, our current president and he seems to be the single person that everyone is always talking about in a way I've never seen with any other president. So, let me just ask you this, and you've already alluded to it, but do you think, or let me, I'll ask it more open-ended. What role is President Trump playing, and is he the problem in the United States and the problem in the world? Yeah, Donald Trump. Remember when he was like a cameo in Home Alone? Was it Home Alone 2? It was like, oh, oh there's, my goodness. That, there's that clown. There's that joker. Oh, he's in the McDonald's ad with Grimace, right? So we've grown up with this guy. Like he, it's just incredible that we've grown up with this guy and yet here he is. And it's a total 
disaster. It, even if you agree with him, it's a disaster for the country because we are so divided. Um, I don't think Trump is the problem. I do feel like he is now like a symbol of something greater, right? And I think that if Trump gets impeached or if Trump decides he's going to Trump Hotel uh, Kyrgyzstan and live out the rest of his days, if Trump decides he's going to peace out to Mars, like there'll be another guy or woman or person that will, or in machinery and all the things that will take the place of it. And I think at the core, what's happening is uh, this unveiling, this revealing. Uh, Adrian Marie Brown has this quote about that things aren't getting worse, they're being revealed and we uh, need one another along the way as we, we live through this moment, right? Oh, I think wow, what's yeah. being unveiled, what's being revealed, it's an apocalyptic moment, right? An apocalypse is about a revealing. And what's being revealed is that we have, a, well, I'll speak for us that grew up or participate in evangelical American culture. Like it, it's found, it's fundamentally bankrupt in that we have for generations talked about, um, I'll just put it this way, clean living, uh, more morality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we have this guy that's seen as like the instrument of all that's um, about good and justice in the world for half the population or for the 81% of evangelicals that voted for him. Over 60% Catholics, uh, 50 plus percent mainline liberal Protestants, right? So we have to query, we have to interrogate what it actually means to, to, to believe in morality and power. Um, and we have a gross abuse of power. Um, other presidents, including the last one, did things that were incredibly great. Um, but we have a real crisis right now. And I think the crisis is uh, going to affect our whole being, whether it's our hearts, whether it's our pocketbooks, whether it's um, just the fabric of our public life together. I, I, it's very bad. It's so bad. And yet, I went to happy hour last night with a friend and had a nice craft beer, and I have privilege, and I lived the rest of my evening um, listening to vinyl on records. Very Portland experience, right? <laughs> um, so, Did you ride your fixed gear? There no, back? no, I don't have the fixed gear. I wish. <laughs> but my point is, I think especially some of us uh, in the white liberal world are waking up to how bad it is or has been for a long time. And so it's not just about team sports getting the the blue team in there again it's about it's about trying to find a way forward for all of us it's going to take a long time that will be truly for the common good i'll, I'll just close with this god, jesus uh invites us to love god and love neighbor and what a lot of us forget is that he says as ourselves and if we begin to learn how to, and they're all this, and that love is not just about like worshiping God or saving your neighbor from injustice in the world. But if we love God and our neighbor as ourselves, if we truly love uh, thyself, we will begin to find healing and uh, true belonging in the world. And I think that's how we get at beating these forces at play that are quite dark right now. Um, but the person themselves, that they're they're nothing new. We. Our, our friends have been reminding us of this for some time that, and they'll come again and we have to figure out how to resist. Well, yeah, I think 
when, when I look at President Trump and the amount of mental, yeah. spiritual, emotional energy that he sucks into his vortex right. at a national level, at a media level, at a Facebook yeah. level. Um, Emil Durkheim talks about the collective conscience, yeah. which is basically a set of values and beliefs, uh, worldviews that kind of hold us together that a, a particular society shares. And um, depending on how you look at it, it's at some level we're fully conscious of it. Other levels, we're unconscious of it. But there's a piece of me that really is beginning to think Donald Trump is, is a manifestation of mm. our collective conscience. Mm-hmm. And like you use the term, things are being revealed. It's apocalyptic. Absolutely. I don't think he's created the division. I think he's revealed it. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, like you, there is a lot of healing um, that needs to happen. And, and I'm glad there's people like you writing books like this that that invite us to consider. It's not really a playbook, but it really invites us to consider steps that we can take so that we can be those who, um, in the tradition of the prophets and in the tradition of Jesus, are those who love well, live as light, bring mm-hmm. joy, and absolutely bring justice. So Adam, how can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Where can they find you online? Yeah. Um, in real life, you can find me most Sundays, almost every Sunday at Christ Church here in Portland. Uh, we're an open, active, and inclusive church. Um, and online, you can find me on Instagram, uh, Phillips AN, uh, or Facebook, Adam Nicholas Phillips. And I'm still currently on Twitter, although <laughs> I'm thinking about getting off it. Um, but you can find me there too. Um, Twitter, I, Twitter, the cesspool of social yeah, media. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, I also have this book that we've been talking about called love, light, joy, and justice. It's available on amazon.com right now. Awesome. Well, Hey Adam, thank you so much for being with us on the changing faith podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank all of you uh, listening once again for joining with us for another episode of the changing faith podcast. May you Become those and be those who each day pursue love, light, joy, and justice. And may you come to see that you are pursued by those things as well. And in doing so, may you surrender to that love, to that light, to that joy, and to that justice so that together we will discover more helpful ways of living as Christians right here and right now. So that is it for today's episode. Once again, thank you for joining with us. And until next time... As always, much love and peace be with you.